There are some things that, yeah, they're funny, but they make serious points. And there are some serious points that are made through the funny in this movie, definitely. This movie does a stellar job of communicating the farcical nature of religion and reminding us not to take things like Christianity too seriously. Even if God proved to be real, he or she or whatever has a lot of explaining to do and wouldn't be worthy of worship just because he, she, or it existed. Can't God take care of this himself? See, Bethany is a smart girl, but Metatron is very quick. And he tells her basically, yeah, but he'd rather you do it. Doesn't that encapsulate every conflict in the Bible and every excuse for why God doesn't do more for humanity? If we stop perpetuating these stories and figure out that everything we have, everything that we get to do in this life has everything to do with us and nothing external, then we don't need to go looking for answers to questions like, why are we here? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers and free thinkers there is life after faith and life here is good it's time for a new perspective and a better conversation i'm spider and i'm shell and it's time to get unbound you know when we started this show (laughs) if you were to ask me what the last thing was that i thought we would ever cover or touch on or even mention in this show Jay and Silent Bob probably would have been one of them. There, I'm sure there would be more, but Jay and Silent Bob, yeah, I couldn't see them fitting in here yeah. at all. No. But in this instance, they do because they're part of this wonderful movie called Dogma that we're going to be taking apart a little bit tonight. And yeah. honestly, I just feel like we've been hitting people with so much heavy shit lately. Yeah. Even the last movie that we did, The Witch, yeah, that, that's was, heavy. that was heavy. And the topics on this show are just by nature of what we discuss here. They're pretty heavy to begin with. But every now and then you kind of have to cut loose a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you have to find the humorous side of all of this craziness. Otherwise, it really could just drive you nuts. So I've learned to laugh at things like Cat Kerr and (laughs) these so-called prophets. And all the craziness that they try to push on the public and try to, that they successfully push on the most gullible among us. For one night, I just want to not be angry about this and just (laughs) look at something that lampoons this whole subject of theism so well that it's definitely worth a mention. And we have mentioned dogma on this show before. But tonight, if you've never seen it, then you are in for a real treat. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And if at this point you haven't seen the movie Dogma, all I can say is good luck because it's a difficult one to find. You're not going to find it streaming anywhere. You're not going to find it new on the shelves of any of the Mm. stores, any of the best buys out there or anything like that. And there are reasons for that that you can Google on your own. But uh, suffice it to say that the likelihood of this movie ever getting any kind of meaningful distribution again is very, very small. But... The whole thing does exist on YouTube, and I'm not going to provide a link because it's a clear copyright violation, but YouTube, I think, knowing what the situation is with this movie, kind of turns a blind eye to it, because the same few copies have been out there for a while, Yeah, and they don't seem like they're going anywhere, so if you've never seen this movie, YouTube is going to be a good resource for it. Also, if you decide that you like it, and you want to be able to watch it whenever you want to watch it, you can still find copies 
in places like eBay, yeah. and some Amazon sellers have them new and used. So it's not like it's lost, but it's a rarity. And it's expensive. And very expensive. And I'm curious to see if we're going to actually hear some of the thunder and some of the weather going on outside. Yeah. Because it seems kind of Hollywood that we're sitting down to talk about this subject and now we're getting loud claps of thunder outside like someone might not be happy about it. Yeah, right. But, of course, that's just as farcical as anything that happens in this movie. Mm. No Christians behaving badly this week. We want to just dive right in and talk about this movie And just like we will for every Unbound at the Movies episode, we're just going to dive in and talk about the movie. And hopefully you'll glean some of the same lessons from this that we did. Because there are some really good lessons to be learned in this movie, albeit accidental, I think. I think that Kevin Smith really honestly and truly only set out to make a funny movie here. Mm. And it was a funny movie based on something that is semi-close to him. Kevin Smith is, for all intents and purposes, a theist, but he is about as much of a theist as your average Catholic. Yeah. And your average Catholic isn't much of a theist. They, quote unquote, believe that God exists because they've been taught to believe it since they were children. But most of them don't make time for church more than once or twice a year. And they don't really worry about what a sin is and what it isn't. You know, that sort of thing. And just quickly, because I already know that this is going to go long tonight, I just want to take a moment and let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. If you have the means to help us out, we would really appreciate your support. And I know we're in the middle of the holidays and gift giving time, and I know money is running scarce for a lot of us right now. So if you don't have the money to send us, then there are other ways that you can show us your support and help us get the word out. Leave us a good review. Leave us a five-star rating. Share some content on social media. Let someone new know about the show this week. All of these things help us to get the word out there to more people, and that is what we are about on this show. We want to help more people get and stay unbound, and we can use your help in the process with that. And I also just want to mention that we've got some really good content coming out for the holidays this year, starting next week with our discussion of Krampus and some of the other kind of out there Christmas traditions that don't have anything to do with Jesus. And there are a lot of those. So we think you're going to enjoy that episode. And then the following week, we're going to be looking at everything wrong with the Christmas story and how it couldn't possibly be true. You know, these are things that you're not really going to hear in Sunday school or from a pulpit, but you're going to hear them here because around here we deal with the truth. So with that, I'm just going to leave it short and sweet because I know that everyone who's listening right now is anxious to hear our take on this movie. So with no further ado, let's jump right in with what will probably be just a slightly askew look at Kevin Smith's Dogma. So before you see anything else, the movie opens with like... A couple of disclaimers. Yes. For starters, Kevin Smith gives us a definition of a disclaimer. So we know what a disclaimer is so that when we see his disclaimer, we know that we're looking at a disclaimer evidently. So disclaimer number one is all about how he set out to make something to make you laugh. And that's all this should do. It shouldn't ruffle your feathers. You're missing the point if you get offended. And the thing that kind of needled at me a little bit at the very end of that first disclaimer 
was how he said judgment is reserved only for God. So it's like, okay, so I guess he's one of those. Yeah. He sort of kind of believes, but I think we get a better picture through some of the dialogue in this movie of yeah. how he believes. Right. And I like the line at the end where he's like, even God has a sense of humor, just look at the platypus. And then we get a disclaimer about platypi. Yes, we don't mean to offend any of the platypi lovers out there. Or the noble platypus itself. No. But the whole thing about this movie is that it's definitely a lampoon. Right. But at the same time, I think that whether he wants to admit it or not, Kevin Smith made something here that we were supposed to walk away thinking about. Right. Whether it was the controversial aspect of it or just the aspect of be careful what you believe. That's one of the points that he's trying to make with this movie, too. So once we get through all the disclaimers, we find ourselves looking over New Jersey Shore, Asbury Park to be specific, and there's some dude just staring out at the surf. This is how the movie opens. Guy's staring out at the surf. There's a wall behind him that says Ski Ball in really big letters. He checks his watch and for a moment seems fascinated with his own hands. It's like he doesn't even know how he got there. But he knows how he got there because there's a definite reason that we're going to become privy to a little bit later. But he seems oblivious to the fact that there are three kids rolling up the boardwalk, making all kinds of noise with their rollerblades. And he's just sort of looking out at the surf and he's oblivious to what's going on around him right up to the point where these three start wailing on him. And boy, do they wail on him. They literally beat him within an inch of his life. You don't see the whole thing, but that's what's happening here. Right. And there's no explanation for this. We don't know who this person is, what his significance is to the rest of the movie. All we know is that these three brats are just wailing on him. Yeah. So the scene then cuts to our first look at One of my favorite characters in this thing, Cardinal Glick, played by the late, great George Carlin. George Carlin is one of the actors in this movie who is not with us anymore, and I miss him tremendously. He was an atheist among atheists and made absolutely no bones about what he thought of religion. So just the sheer irony of him playing a Catholic cardinal in this and playing it so fucking well. Yeah. I mean, he's he's got the attitude and he's got the personality down pat, mm. at least for one from New Jersey. <laughs> he's got the whole thing down yeah. pat. And he's holding a press conference wherein he informs the people that have gathered at his church that the church, not his church, but the church, mother church, the Catholic church, is retiring the image of the crucifix in favor of what he self-monikers the buddy christ it's like this is just a working title we're, we're probably not going to go with this but it kind of fits it really fits and you know just to describe this thing in words really wouldn't do it justice all you need to do and you know i'm pretty sure that most people who are listening to this have probably seen this by now yes but if you don't know what this thing looks like just put it right into google yeah. and you and and just be prepared to laugh and yeah. laugh loudly Because it really is the polar opposite of 
any kind of imagery that you would see of the crucifixion mm-hmm. and Jesus acting very, very, very 90s. Oh, so 90s. It was one of the most 90s things in this movie. Only the Stitchin' triplets were more 90s, and those were the kids that we saw at the beginning. And boy, oh boy, did they seem to just embody things going on in Kevin Smith's head. And that's not a slight. No, it's not. Kevin Smith had a particular hat. He's not dead. Kevin Smith has a particular style that really came out well in this movie in particular. But there were things, I mean, if you don't know who the director of a Kevin Smith movie is, about 10 minutes in, you're going to know. Yes. Because there are certain things that he does in very specific ways, and he portrays characters in specific ways. And the Stygian triplets are also a real Kevin Smith sort of thing. Yeah. So the press has, you know, they, they have their little ooh and ah moment over this. It's all part of this program called Catholicism Wow, which, you know, it has a much more evangelical yes. kind of feel to it. Yeah. It really doesn't strike me as a Catholic anything. This is the type of thing that I would have expected from the Assemblies of God. Yeah, like a big banner at a youth group saying, evangelicalism, wow. Or just Jesus, wow. Wow. Or Holy Spirit, wow. Yeah, Yeah, I could totally see it. And I think we've both seen worse at youth conventions and whatnot. Yeah. Some of those themes were just, yeah, they were they, they were cringeworthy. More cringeworthy than the buddy Christ. Yeshua? You betcha. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, those misty watercolor memories, what we were talking about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that, that was that was one of the more cringeworthy ones. Yeah. And you wore that shirt a lot. I did. You I really thought did. it was funny. It was. And you know what? Since I don't have the Boston accent, I didn't get it. Oh, that's true. I didn't get it because I just thought it was unique. I didn't get that they were trying to do a Boston accent Yeshua? with Yeshua. You betcha. Oh, my God. So now we know a little bit about this campaign that they're doing. It, it, just, it also happens that this is this particular church's 100th anniversary it's their centennial right which we're about to find out is significant but not before we are introduced to two of the best characters in this yeah they're kind of like the mirror universe of jay and silent bob yeah and there are two characters named uh loki and bartleby these two are fallen angels who weren't bad enough for hell right but they raised enough of a stink in heaven that God decided that they didn't belong there anymore, so he exiles them to Wisconsin. Yes. And where they have been for a long time. I'm wondering where they were before Wisconsin, because all of this stuff went down long before there was a Wisconsin. Well, maybe they banished the angels to, like, modern day, or at least, you know, like, founding of Wisconsin. Possibly, but I still feel like there's more to this story that we're not told. Yeah. But... It really doesn't matter because it's just funny enough that they've been exiled to Wisconsin. So they're hanging out at one of the airports. And I'm like, gee, does Wisconsin have airports? No, no offense if you're from Wisconsin. They're kind of a big state. Yeah. I did a little bit of Googling and they have a lot of airports. So they could have been at any one of the airports in Wisconsin. And they were people watchers. Bartleby especially was kind of a people watcher. And he was fascinated with people and their behaviors. And of course, because he's not human and he has certain powers among them, being able to see what's going on inside people's heads, Mm. it makes it even more interesting for him. 
so when we first meet Loki, he is having this conversation with a nun and basically eviscerating her faith with some of the most logical assessments of Christianity that, you know, you you expect to hear this on, like, the thinking atheist or the atheist experience or something like that. You don't expect to hear it from a character in a comedy. And the way that he ties it in with the walrus and the carpenter, Lewis Carroll, and that whole thing that he goes through with her on that, and that is the thing that kind of changes her mind on the whole theism. This She's a nun. Yes. And he manages to make an atheist out of her in like a couple of minutes. It's like, damn, if it was that easy, I wouldn't have needed to do 90 episodes of this show so far. Well, he's an ex-angel. Well, yeah. But I mean, really, is he trying to send that poor lady to hell? Isn't that the punishment for unbelief? Now, you see, you're thinking like an evangelical. Because Catholics don't look at it quite yeah, the same way. Yeah, true. She's not going to go to hell for not being a nun anymore. Right. Because you got to understand, we're talking about a religion that is a lot more works-oriented. True. So she's put in her time. Yeah. And in Catholic terms, that actually means something. Mm. So I don't think that the point was to send her to hell. I think the point was to just let her have a little bit of a life. Yeah, yeah. And that was most of it. And honestly, what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Mm. To help some people along the way get their lives back and start seeing this shit for what it is. Yeah. And that was kind of his MO. Although the ironic part of it is that in this universe, God absolutely exists. And Loki has had conversations with God. He's been in God's presence. And Bartleby brings this up to him. It's like, you know for a fact that God exists. And you're like one of the better atheists out there. (laughs) You know? So yeah, it's a game for Loki. This whole thing is a big game. And this is where we get Bartleby's assessment of the airport. Because apparently Bartleby likes to hang out at the airport. Because he likes the whole people watching thing. And he says that the airport basically represents humanity at its best. Right. And then starts pointing out all of the sins and shortcomings of the people around them. It's like this woman gets off her plane and is greeting her boyfriend slash husband, whoever this guy is. And Bartleby is pointing out that she cheated on him while she was away. And it's like, but you know what? Look at them. At this moment, it doesn't matter. They're just so relieved to be back in each other's arms that that doesn't even matter at this point. (laughs) So his take on people is interesting, but a lot more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot more accurate than you would think it would be on the surface, given that this is a comedy. There's a lot more accuracy and truth in the things that these two say in particular. Between them and Rufus, there's a lot going on there that kind of transcends the comedic aspect of this. But we're told in the very beginning to treat it all as comedy. So I try to suppress it a little bit. But, you know, at the end, when I give my final assessment of this, you're going to find out there are some things that, yeah, they're funny, but they make serious points. And there are some serious points that are made through the funny in this movie, definitely. So apparently Bartleby has summoned Loki to the airport. Right. So Loki is a little bit uh, perturbed that he was called away from his cartoons to to have this this meeting with Bartleby. And Bartleby hands him a newspaper clipping and says, we're going home. Someone sent them this clipping. Right. We don't know who at this point, but we will find out. And it's like, why on earth would you even take this seriously? But, you know, there's a lot more. There's a lot more to this part of it. 
and it becomes an obsession for Bartleby. And as Bartleby starts explaining this to Loki, we cut right back to the church where Grant Hicks, cousin of Dante from Clerks, is giving the choppiest news report that I've ever heard. He says, and I quote, the rededication of St. Michael's Church on its 100th anniversary is a kickoff to a new campaign that seeks to bring Catholicism back into the mainstream. With a papal sanction, the archway entrance to the century-old Jersey Shore House of Worship will serve as a passageway of plenary indulgence, a little-known Catholic belief that offers all who pass through its arches a morally clean slate. So, yeah, anything that I see related to Catholicism that has the word indulgence tagged onto it, I'm skeptical of to begin yeah. with. I mean, let's let's think about this. This is where I started out. And I knew about indulgences. And, you know, they didn't end with Martin Luther. No. Unfortunately, we also have evangelicalism because of indulgences. Because indulgences were the focal point of the 95 Theses. Right. So that word puts a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Just thinking about what it entails and how people are hoodwinked into doing things and giving money. And not just money. There are other things that the church has over the years gotten people accustomed to doing so that they can wipe their slate just a little bit cleaner before they die. But this is an all-out, soul-cleansing, complete, clean slate that's open to anyone who walks through the archway of this church. And that right there is the entire focus of this movie. Bartleby and Loki think that they're going to be able to walk through the archway of this church and Everything that they ever did to offend God is just going to be forgiven. And it has to be that way. It's like God doesn't have a choice, and we'll get into why in just a sec. But there's just one problem here. They're angels. And the plenary indulgence aspect of this applies to humans. So they have to become human to pull this off. Yeah. So Bartleby has this bright idea that they're going to cut off their wings because in some otherworldly realm of logic... This makes them human. Then they walk through the arch, their sins are forgiven, and then they just have to somehow die, which Loki isn't really digging the concept of this. He's looking at this from a much more practical standpoint than Bartleby ever did, and that's going to continue through the course of the movie. He's going to be more of the voice of reason, but he's kind of dragged along. He's kind of dragged along by Bartleby, And the whole what-if-it-works thing does kind of keep him on track with this a little bit more. So they have to somehow die. And the problem here is that they also won't be angels anymore, but they'll be human and they'll get to go back to heaven. They'll be home. They won't have the same status or anything that they had before, but at least they'll be in familiar surroundings, and it's not fucking Wisconsin. (laughs) Again, no offense to our Wisconsinite listeners, but just think about it. If the events in this movie are true and heaven is as good as it's made out to be, would you rather be there or Wisconsin? I mean, just, just think about it for a sec. So Loki, again, being the voice of reason here, brings up a little problem that he sees with this plan. He says that the plenary indulgence thing is just a church law. It's not a divine mandate. And because this was something that was thought up by men, then it may or may not be legit. It may not work. Bartleby 
then counters with his own argument. And I've heard this one before, actually, when I was in Catholic school. I learned about some of this and what Peter's place was and what was promised to him. And this is what Bartleby comes back with. He says, one of the last sacred promises imparted to Peter, the first pope, by the Son of God before he left was, whatever you hold true on earth, and Loki finishes the sentence and says, I'll hold true in heaven. And it's like he's having an epiphany. Right. It's like, you know what? This actually could work. And if you want the reference for it, it actually is right there in the book in Matthew 16, 18, and 19. That's the point where Jesus says this to Peter and then repeats it again just two chapters later in Matthew right. 18, 18. He says it again. So Peter being the first pope, According to Catholic belief and tradition, any authority that Peter had translates to any pope that comes after him. Right. So it doesn't matter who the pope is. As long as the pope says that something is so, God must adhere. So if this is a church law, it's it's been past the pope's desk, basically. Right. So if the pope agrees that plenary indulgences are a thing... And that if your church is 100 years old, you can basically save every soul in town by just having them walk in, (laughs) then that's just the truth. And it has to be that way. And God can't circumvent it because if the Pope says it's so, God must adhere. It's dogmatic law. Hence the title. And when I heard that the first time, when I saw this movie for the first time, I'm like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Is God all powerful or is he not? Well, guess what? We're going to get the answer to that question in a little while too. So Loki gets this idea that since they only have four days left on earth, that there's something that he's been wanting to do. A little bit of backstory on Loki. He was the angel of death. In the Old Testament, he was the one that was responsible for taking out the uh, Egyptian firstborns, among other things. And along the line, he kind of changed his role. And we'll get into that in a little while, too. But he's kind of feeling a tug back to his old position Mm. at this point. So Bartleby is fixated on getting to New Jersey to be at this church and walk through that arch. Whereas Loki has his sights set on the board of directors of this evil corporation that runs the Mubi's restaurant chain that you see again in Clerks 2. I think it shows up in a couple of the other Kevin Smith movies. Yeah. Apparently, Loki is not at all happy with the way some of these people are managing their lives. Yeah. So he's got it in his head that we're going to make a pit stop here and then we'll worry about this church thing. And Bartleby is kind of on board, but he's a little bit antsy. But they have four days. And I guess they figure that it'll be easier than it actually winds up being for them to get there. Right. But Bartleby, he's going to go along with it because if he goes along with this, then Loki will go along with him. He'll have the backup that he needs and it should work. Right. So at this point, they've got their plan set. And now we get to meet Bethany. Bethany is what we will learn in a little while to be the last scion. And what that means is that she is a direct descendant of the line of Jesus. The point is that she's got some of the same DNA in her that Jesus did. And that makes her a scion and the last in her line. So this is also going to prove to be significant. She doesn't know this at this point. Right. And ironically enough, she works at an abortion clinic in Illinois. 
we also get a little uh, what I think is an awesome bit part for Janine Garofalo. I yeah. wish that they had given her more to do. I know. I think it would have been fun for her to have a bigger role in this movie. Like maybe replace one of the characters that we see later with her. I think she would have brought the signature snark to yeah. that particular role. But alas, we get her for one little scene here. But it's enough to learn more about Bethany and she's the one that we need to know about. She has a lot of regrets. Her marriage fell apart because she couldn't have kids. She couldn't have kids because she'd had an abortion that led to an infection that basically caused her to not be able to get pregnant. So her husband eventually leaves her because she can't make babies for him and he leaves her for someone who can. So yeah, nice guy. Yeah, really. And she and uh, and her coworker Janine, whatever her name is in the movie, I forget. But um, they're they're talking about all of this, and the conversation comes around to faith, and it's brought up that Bethany goes to church every Sunday, and that she has at least a degree of belief. But in a moment of kind of brutal honesty here, Bethany says, and I quote: "I sit there every Sunday, and I feel nothing." Well, I started thinking to myself, there are a lot of people to whom that pertains. Yeah. Especially in the Catholic Church, but even in evangelical circles. You know, I I know that on certain days like Easter and Christmas Eve or whatever, yeah. we would get a lot more people in church at Faith Assembly too. Right. So again, people are people and it doesn't matter what the faith is. Most people are going to approach their faith the same way. Even if they identify as born again, there are some that will only make their way to church on Easter and Christmas too. And I can only imagine that if they are adults and they're doing this, that they were probably dragged to church every week when they were kids. Right. And reached a point where they were where Bethany is, where they sat there every Sunday and felt nothing, so just stopped going. Right. So on the heels of that, now we get to meet Asriel. Um, Kevin Smith kind of sets up the pieces on the chessboard here at the very beginning of the movie. This is like only the first 10 minutes or so. Right. And he is establishing every character that has anything interesting or relevant to do in the movie. Right. So we're bouncing from one thing to another to another to another very, very quickly. But then he does a really good job of developing all of their arcs. So now we're meeting Asriel. And Asriel is a demon. who loves Central Air because it's a little hot where he lives. Mm. And then we find out who the Stygian triplets actually are because they're Azrael's toadies. We still don't know why they wailed on this old man at the beginning. We still don't know what that was about, but now he has another job for them and he wants them to intercept the Scion. And all I'm thinking here is, as he's sending them off, all I'm thinking is, fly, monkeys, fly! And that's pretty much where that scene ends. There's more. But, you know, we're trying to move past the boring bits here. Um, yeah. But, you know, that lady, that poor lady. Yeah. You know, know right? he sets up his headquarters in this lady's house. And rather than just try and scare her into letting them in or letting her run away. No, no, no. He's a demon. And since he is a fallen angel and spent a lot of time around Yahweh, he learned from the best that the solution to any problem is to just kill whoever the fuck is in your way. So he kills her and uh, (laughs) takes over her house and basks in the central air and then sends his monkeys to go get Bethany. And while all of this is happening, Bethany is just trying to get some sleep because it's late. 
And out of a sound sleep, she wakes up to fire. Fire. Lots of fire right there at the foot of her bed. It's contained fire, but it's fire. So as any responsible adult would do, she springs out of bed. She grabs the fire extinguisher and attempts to put out the fire. But there's just one problem. This is no ordinary fire. Because now we get to meet a very irritated Severus Snape, uh, or Metatron. And I'm thinking, watching this after so many years and seeing him in so many different roles, I'm thinking to myself, he's almost an amalgam of a lot of his characters. My first thought here was Alan Rickman is Hans Gruber as Severus Snape, as Metatron. And I'll admit... There was never an instant in my life where I hoped that Alan Rickman would drop trow on screen. (laughs) But in this instance, it's pretty damn funny because if you ever saw a Led Zeppelin album cover, that's pretty much what he looks like down below because angels and the like are androgynous. Yes. And we find this out about uh, Bartleby and Loki earlier too. But this is the visual that we get. It's marvelously low budget 90s level visual but it gets the job done one thing that i like about this character though is that it predates only by a couple of years but it predates harry potter it it predates him as snape but it's like he reminds me of what a younger snape would have been like right and he's got snape's signature grump but he's got something that snape never had and that's wings yes And what a wingspan he has. We also find out that he is the voice of God. So, you know, whenever somebody hears God talking to them, it's this guy that they're hearing. I wouldn't have minded if all the times that I thought God was speaking to me, he spoke with Alan Rickman's voice. Yeah, that would have been nice. Yeah, totally. At least we'd know who he was. Yeah, yeah, that's for (laughs) sure. But of course, you know, he's, he's a little bit affronted by the fact that Bethany doesn't know who he is. He is, uh, you know, he starts talking about other characters in the Bible. It's like, oh, you know this one. You you know who this person is, like right off the bat. But somebody like me, yeah, no, you're you're not going to know who I am, are you? And he proceeds to explain to her that he's a seraphim. He's part of the highest choir of angels, and again, that he's the voice of God. And let me just go on record here, just a quick pause to say that I really miss Alan Rickman yeah. a lot. He was a great dude, you know. I loved his voice and his snark. And might I just say that Metatron sounds like a Transformer name? It kind of does. But I'd, ne- I'd never heard of it before the movie. So I was like, he doesn't look like a Transformer. What's what? No, but it basically means other voice. Yeah. And that's it, it's completely apropos yes. for who he is. Now that it's been established who he is and Bethany is no longer freaking out, he decides that he has to explain what's going on to her in a little bit more of a relaxed setting and maybe one that involves a little bit of alcohol so that she can take this news a little bit more easily. So they, I guess, apparate. No, it's wrong (laughs) fandom again. But they instantly find themselves in what she thinks is Mexico. Right. Because she never gets out and doesn't realize that they're at a restaurant on the other end of town, basically. Yeah. But they're sitting in this restaurant and Metatron is, he's slamming shots of tequila, but he's not swallowing them. No. He's taking, well, not really shots. He's taking sips and then spitting them out, which, of course, seems a little bit strange. 
but we're going to find out why in a sec. So Bethany at this point is being charged with what he calls a holy crusade. He wants her to visit this small church in New Jersey on a very important day. Remember, she's in Illinois, okay? And he's telling her to go to New Jersey just to go to this church because it's an important day. And since that doesn't work as well as he hoped it would, then he hits her with the fine print and says that she's going to need to stop a couple of angels from entering this church and negating all existence because that is what's at stake here. And uh, the person or the entity who sent that clipping to Bartleby understood this. But Bartleby is so fixated on the notion of going home that I'm not sure if at this point he's thinking about it. But I do think that in the back of his mind, because he's very smart. Yeah. And the fact that he can read people's thoughts tells me that he must have known. Yeah. He must have. But I think he chose this route for the same reason that Azrael chose it, which he will admit to a little bit later. And he knows. Azrael knows that this is a thing that will be brought about if this plan works. So at this point, Metatron tells Bethany, like, everything that anyone would ever want to know about Loki and Bartleby. He says that once Loki was done taking out the firstborn of Egypt, Bartleby kind of took him aside for a post-slaughter drink And, you know, several rounds in, they get into this discussion about whether or not murder in the name of God is okay. And Bartleby has his own take on this. And Bartleby is, of course, very persuasive. And, you know, he's the smart one of the pair. Loki isn't stupid. I mean, just based on on the way that we meet him, we know that he isn't stupid, but he's definitely not on Bartleby's level. No. And when he's half in the bag, then, of course, you know, the alcohol messes with your ability to make good decisions. Mm. So while Loki is drunk, Bartleby convinces him to quit his position and take on a lesser one. Uh, I'm not sure that Loki understood how much lesser things were going to be at that point, (laughs) but... The point is that it wouldn't involve slaughter. So, very inebriated, Loki tells God that he quits, throws down his fiery sword, and gives God the finger. And that, according to Metatron, ruins it for all angels because now they're not allowed to imbibe alcohol. And that's why he's sitting there taking shots and spitting them out because he literally physically can't swallow it. Then he explains that if they do manage to get in, They're going to have reversed God's decree. And then he says, now listen up, because this part is very important. Existence in all its form and splendor functions solely on one principle, and that is that God is infallible. To prove God wrong would undo reality and everything that is. Up would become down, black would become white, existence would become nothingness. In essence, if they are allowed to enter the church, they'll unmake the world some of that's in the movie and some of it's just in the script there were there were some gems that got cut from the script but i think that the actors had a little bit more um they had a little bit more latitude than some directors would allow but i think some stuff did get lost that should have stayed in there's some stuff that metatron says in the script that i really wish had been in the movie but they make up for it later because there's a whole scene with him that's not even in the script that i thought was brilliant But another thing that I thought of the very first time that I saw this was something that one of our professors had to say on this same subject. 
he made the point that there are absolutely positively certain things that God can't do. Right. That there are still limitations to an unlimited, infallible, omnipresent, omniscient being. There are still limits and provisos. There are things that God can't do. And one of the major ones was lie. Well, it was one of the ones that he decided to fix on during that conversation. Right. And he said, so let's just say that God were to tell a lie, that he knew to be a lie. And if he's God, then he has to know that it's a lie. So he tells a lie. And what happens at that point is that not only does everything that we are, everything that we know cease to be, it literally never was. Because he would have done something so contrary to his nature that it would negate him. And that's the same exact concept that's being used here. So it's like, geez, when did Kevin Smith go to Valley Forge? But (laughs) um, yeah, it was far from a foreign concept. I heard this and all I could hear in my head was this professor telling us this in, I guess it was my sophomore year or so. Now, Bethany is, you know, she's kind of nonplussed. Yeah. By this whole thing, she kind of uh, blows it off and she's like, okay, so they found a loophole. Good for them. And I think it's at that point that Metatron breaks it down to brass tacks and says, look, if they do this, then you, me and everything else is just gone. And I don't think that that really bothers her that much either. And she goes into this diatribe that was also very familiar in terms of the sentiment, not so much the details, but the sentiment. And I think that this is kind of the foundation for a lot of people's crisis of faith is the question, where was God when? And she's got a good list of whens that she says right out loud. What she says is when some quiet little infection destroyed my uterus, where was God? When my husband decided he couldn't be with a wife that couldn't bear his children, where was God? To hell with him. And you know what? That's kind of where I was when I rage quit the first time. Yeah. It's like, If you don't solve this problem for me, then I don't want you in my life anymore. And that's kind of where Bethany is at this point. She is still willing to believe that God exists, but she's not happy with him and doesn't really want to be his follower at this point. And yet she's going to church every single Sunday because it's just in her DNA at this point. It's literally in her DNA, but it's so part of who she is that even though she clearly... She she may believe in God, but she doesn't love him. Well, no. But she keeps going to church because, guess what? It's the fear factor. Yeah. And those thoughts run very deep. The fear factor isn't just for evangelicals. It's for Christianity in general. Mm-hmm. You know, evangelicalism came from somewhere, and guess what? This was it. Yeah. Even though they hate the Catholics. Evangelicals and Catholics, they're like oil and water. Right. But without the mother church, then you wouldn't have Cat Kerr. So, yeah. you know. And, Take that and as you will. True. True that. So Metatron, I guess he's trying to sweeten the pot a little bit here yeah. and tells her that she has the opportunity to become, quote, mother to the world by saving it from Bartleby and Loki's hijinks. And he promises that she'll have support in the form of prophets. Speaking of Cat Kerr, but there's going to be two of them and... You're going to like them way more than you would like Robin Bullock or Cat Kerr, that's for sure. Yeah. There's one who talks incessantly and one who doesn't talk at all. So anyone who knows the Askew universe at all knows where this is going. And 
they also know that both are likely to be way more likable and palatable than any evangelical prophet yeah. out there. Even the silent one, especially the silent one. Yes. And Metatron tells Bethany that they will identify themselves as such to her when they find her. They will identify themselves as the prophets. So, of course, she comes back with even more logic. Metatron's starting to get bored with the conversation at this point. It's obvious. But she comes back with one sentiment that all of us who have ever been part of any flavor of Christianity can relate to. And that is the question, can't God take care of this himself? See, Bethany is a smart girl, but Metatron is very quick. And he tells her basically, yeah, but he'd rather you do it. (laughs) Doesn't that encapsulate every conflict in the Bible and every excuse for why God doesn't do more for humanity? That's been my experience anyway. Is, you know, why can't God just take care of this himself? Well, because he wants you to do it. Right. But he could do it so much better. But he wants you to do it. But he could do it faster. But he wants you to do it. And, you know, that honestly was what kept me striving toward being in the ministry. Right. Was that it felt like an honor that God wanted me to do this shit that he could do himself. Right. But he was choosing to use me for it. And that was uh, the ego stroke that a lot of us need to keep going in the path of ministry. So that, again, you know, there are plenty of reflections here. doesn't matter what flavor of Christianity it is. A lot of the more nefarious bits transcend most lines. And this, I think, is kind of nefarious. It's like there's no better reason than, yeah, but he wants you to do it. Come on. I think that we deserve better. I think that I deserved better. When, you know, I asked the question, why me? Why did I get called into this? And why am I having such a hard time with it? And all of that. I think that I deserve something better than it's just what God wants me to do. Yeah. But that's all she's getting. And now she has to decide whether or not she's going to take on this task. So there's a little bit more related conversation. And then like a hypnotist, Metatron shakes a pair of maracas at Bethany. And she startles awake in her own bed. And I'm guessing for a split second there, she's thinking, okay, that was just a dream. But then she notices the pair of maracas in bed with her. So yeah, something happened. Okay, this was not a dream. And now she's got a decision to make. So major, major time jump here in terms of this movie. This whole thing takes place over four days. So we see her asleep in bed. And then we jump immediately to the next night after work. That's one of the more jarring parts of this movie to me. Yeah, it was kind of mystifying to me at first. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, it's the next night. Okay. Yes. You know, Kevin Smith tells a good story. Yeah. But there have been occasions in a few of his movies where he could have told it a little bit better. And this was definitely one of them. But the bottom line is that I guess, and to quote Alfred Hitchcock, film is like life with the boring bits left out. Yeah. So I guess nothing interesting happened that day. And that's why we get this. Everyone's kind of in transit at this point. If you're looking at every arc in this movie, there's a real in transit kind of mood to it. Right. So it's the next night and Bethany is about to have a run-in with the Stygian triplets. She's on her way out of work. It's the end of her work night. And there they are, still in their grunge-era Kevin Smith hockey fetish glory. And one of them checks her, and she drops her keys. 
Then one of them slap shots the keys under her car so she can't get to them. And now she's basically cornered. This does not look good. The Stygian triplets charge at her and then, literally from out of the shadows, snooch to the motherfucking nooch. And we meet Jay and Silent Bob in their role in this movie. It's our heroes. They are the prophets. And they are literally busting it Ninja Turtle style. That's what I thought of. At that moment, it's like one of the early scenes in the original, the only Ninja Turtles movie that matters. Yeah. Where April is being jumped by those thugs and the turtles basically save her and disappear. Well, the prophets aren't going to disappear. They've got an agenda. Okay. They're there for reasons that have nothing to do with any of this. I love these guys. Oh, yeah. They have this enigmatic likability, even though they're not really the best of people. No, not you know, it's in clerks, they're drug dealers. Yes. And they're actually still drug dealers. They're just yeah. drug dealers in Illinois for a specific reason right. at this point. And before they get into any of that, I'm thinking, so what? This is Illinois. God teleported these two from Jersey to save the damsel in distress. What exactly yeah. is going on here? And kind of impressed, actually, that they show up here because it's like, for once, God is doing something to help out, Right. Well, not really. There really is no ecclesiastical hocus-pocus to any of this. We find out that Jay and Silent Bob are in Illinois of their own accord and that they're only hanging out outside an abortion clinic to try and get laid because, as Jay so eloquently puts it, abortion clinics are a good place to meet loose women. Why else would they be there unless they like to fuck? So, so like, yeah, well, that's what I mean. They're, they're enigmatically likable, but they're terrible people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Jay, basically, he has done his bid to save the damsel in distress and he's making a beeline for the coochie, like immediately he's asking for his payment for his services rendered at this point. And of course he has the nerve to get all huffy when Bethany doesn't just give it up in the parking lot of her workplace. So rejected and really, really irritated about it, Jay decides to pack up Silent Bob and go back to New Jersey to sell drugs for profit. Ding. (laughs) And there's a literal ding. Yes. Because you can hear the alarm going off in her head. New Jersey? Profit? Okay, so maybe it's not the same word, but in a homophonic sort of way, it's the confirmation that she needs. Yes. So yeah, it's not even the same word, but it doesn't even matter. All things spiritual... And this is another one of those wonderful lessons that we learned in this movie. All things spiritual are up for infinite interpretation. Me as well. So Jay and Silent Bob never do anything. Pro- well, I won't say never do anything prophetic, but they don't do anything that is purposefully yeah. prophetic. Right. No. Um, they're the accidental heroes in most of the movies. That's yes. the thing. Which is kind of the trope that Kevin Smith wrote around them. Yes. So now we cut back to Bartleby and Loki, who are buying guns from, uh, I guess it's not Randall, because they're not in New Jersey at this point. It's going to take them a while to get there, but it's Randall from Clerks, and I really wanted this to be Randall. But again, the the thing about the Askew universe is that some characters maintain their roles, but a lot of them get switched up. And he uses the same actors all the time. So, like, Ben Affleck is in a bunch of Kevin Smith movies, but he's never the same person. But Jay and Silent Bob are always the same characters. Right. And there are parts of this universe that are very static, too. Like movies. Movies is an Askew Universe thing. Yeah. And when they're on the train later on, 
Jay and Silent Bob are talking about the events in Mallrats. Yeah. So certain things. <laughs> and, and the ironic part about that is that Ben Affleck is in that movie and he plays a different character. And they don't notice a resemblance nope, when no they're resemblance. they're just you know shooting the shit with Bartleby and Loki later on. But that's that's true a universe style there, and so is the reason why Jay and Silent Bob are actually in Illinois at this point. Not to get too far ahead, uh, Bartleby and Loki are buying guns, and Bethany has basically convinced Jay and Silent Bob to at least stick around and hear her out, not necessarily help her or let her deadhead with them to New Jersey or whatever it is that she's trying to do. But she decides to ply them with diner food. I know it would work on me. Yeah, I, I like yeah. some good diner food. They're sitting around and they're discussing John Hughes movies. And here's where we find out why Jay and Silent Bob are in Illinois. They're there on a failed pilgrimage to Shermer. They wanted to visit the town where all the John Hughes movies take place. Yes. And they get to Illinois, and they find out that this place is fiction. Okay, the internet existed at this point. Maybe yes. look it up before you up. before you travel halfway across the country. But that's not the way these two do things at all. No. So and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, great. The Askew Universe set out to find the Hughes Universe, and never the twain were ever going to meet. Jay uses this tale of woe to try and make another plea for sex. Bethany kind of dismisses it, doesn't really respond this time, and simply asks them again to take her to Jersey. Jay isn't really into it if he isn't going to get his dick wet, but but she figures out a way to talk their language just long enough to get them to agree. And these three magic words are what does it. She says, I'll pay you. And they agree for a hundred bucks. A hundred dollars. Yeah. Ah, the 90s. Yes. When a hundred bucks would entice you yes. to do something like this. So they're getting on their way and we find out that Jay really doesn't know how to drive stick because they're out there on the highway doing 95 and he's in like second gear and the engine just sort of seizes up and that's the end of their mode of transport. In the meantime, Bartleby and Loki are on a bus to New Jersey and they're having more cerebral conversations. Bartleby chides Loki about being incapable of killing people anymore and Loki decides to take the bait and he starts engaging with this couple on the bus and finds out and well not finds out because he can do the same thing that they can both do the same thing. Right. They, they know that these people are they're having an affair. Right. And of course, judgment is about to befall them. These vile sinners, they have to pay for their sins. And the guy's kind of a dick, so you don't really feel bad for him, mm -hmm. but just the whole randomness of it at this point in time, it's another example of Loki taking the bait when Bartleby tries to get him involved in something that is kind of nonsensical. I still don't know why this one thing didn't unravel at all, because between this and what happens a couple scenes later, it's like, how did they even make it to New Jersey? I don't because it advanced the plot if they made it to New Jersey, and that's the entire reason right there. So Loki has resumed his previous role and has exacted judgment on Cheaty Pete and in so doing also does a good job of clearing out the bus. In the meantime, Jay is still convinced that he's going to fuck Bethany and he's making all kinds of appeals here because that's what Jay does. It's kind of all he thinks about. Yes. And she is rapidly deciding in her head that the quote unquote profits are nuts, but she can't get away from the circumstances. So she kind of knows that she's right about them, but she's like, 
well, Jesus fuck, why does it have to be these guys? That's sort of, that's that's sort of the sentiment that I get from her there. And with that, it's time for us to meet Rufus. They don't have any mode of transport. So they're literally walking. Okay. They're walking down not I don't even think it's a highway. They're like out in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest. And they're walking down this very long road. And Jay is still a little bit irritated that he can't have his way with Bethany. And he says something along the lines of, what's wrong with you, lady? Guys like us don't just fall out of the sky. Well, enter Rufus, who literally falls out of the sky (laughs) right onto the pavement in front of them. Just out of nowhere, there's this black dude, a naked black dude in the middle of the road. (laughs) And no one, of course, knows who he is. And when he finally comes to... He lets them know that he was Jesus's 13th apostle. Why wasn't he in the Bible? Well, he wasn't in the Bible because he was black. Yeah, <laughs> and that that's his entire that's the entire explanation for it. So of course, Chris Rock is playing Rufus here, and I think that this was kind of a role that was made for him. Yes. And it may very well have been. I'm thinking that sometimes Kevin Smith when he wrote these characters, he had actors in mind for them. Right. So Rufus is he's about as Chris Rock as they come. Yeah. You know, I don't think that Chris Rock really had to act in this one. He was just no. being Chris Rock, calling himself something else. And he was very, very good in this. I liked him a lot. Yeah. We find out that Jesus owes him 12 bucks and basically told him when he was going to die because he gets a letter from Jesus that says, uh, I'll see you in two years. So now he knows he's going to be martyred. Uh, yeah. it's, it's kind of macabre, but funny at the same time. Yeah. So now they're all proceeding to walk to New Jersey, but wait, the triplets are right there. For whatever reason, they don't take any real action. They're just sort of there doing recon, I guess. And they cut a rift in space-time and report back to Asriel. So our heroes are just, they're walking. They're just walking. And apparently all that walking works up an appetite for them. So now we are having gross breakfast sandwiches at movies, if you ever saw Clerks 2, you see them make these sales. Oh, God. Ugh. They look, they, they look nasty. They look so nasty. But Rufus then starts bitching about not making it into the Bible because only white guys made the narrative, and he's not wrong. I saw a meme recently where somebody posed the question, what's something that's that's not in the Bible that everyone thinks is in the Bible? And the first answer that they got was white people. Yeah. And it's so true. Yeah. It is so true. There, There isn't a pasty white person anywhere in this narrative. And I love his little uh, diatribe here where he says, among other things, a black man can steal your stereo, but he can't be your savior. That in reference to Jesus also being black, which he makes a point of bringing up. So he's got a lot of complaints about the role that he played in Jesus's ministry. And then he says, that's what's particularly insulting. Between the time when he established the faith and the church started to officially organize, the powers that be decided that while the message of Christ was integral, the fact that he was black was a detriment. So all renderings were ordered to be Eurocentric, even though the brother was blacker than Jesse. I'm Jesse who? Jesse Jackson? I'm not sure what he meant there. But then there's a line in there that I feel like today wouldn't work as well. It wouldn't work. Where Rufus says that faith should be colorblind. Now, this is a kind of 90s way of looking at things as far as I'm concerned. Because today saying things like, I don't see you as black, aren't exactly considered to be complimentary. 
So the concept of colorblindness might be more of a pejorative than Kevin thought when he wrote this particular line. But not so much back then, I guess. I don't know for sure. I feel like I'm probably a little bit too white to be commenting on this conversation. Yeah, same. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of leave that there. But Rufus basically has been sent to help them stop the angels. And he knows way too much about Bethany. You know, all of these, all these people, all these entities around her understand what's going on. And she really doesn't quite understand yet. And, you know, he starts telling her things about herself to make the point clear that, you know, there's more going on here than you realize. And what I'm telling you about me is legit. What's going on here is legit. We legit need your help. And of course, Jay has to start running his mouth. So Rufus kind of aims the crosshairs at him for a second here. And we learn, not that we wanted to, what Jay masturbates to. And I'm certain I didn't want to (laughs) know. But we also find out that God dislikes the word mythology. Because of course he does. Right. Because of the connotation of it. It kind of takes away from the realness of all of it. Even though in Bible college, we use the term mythology to describe what goes on in the Bible. And of course it was spun in a way that, you know, mythology doesn't necessarily have to mean untrue. Uh, It kind of does. Yeah. It kind of does. Kind of. But we're going to learn a little bit more about Catholic mythology right now because it's time to meet the muse, AKA serendipity, AKA Selma Hayek. And surprise, she's, I don't know if she's a stripper or just a go-go dancer. I think that she's more on the go-go dancer end of things. We're going to learn more about her and what her role is in all of this in a little while. And there's one very interesting tie-in that we learned toward the end that I probably shouldn't have been surprised by, but I still was. So once we get a good look at her, we get a little bit of, um, a little bit of her personality. We find out that she has a slightly different view of who God is than the rest of them do. And I mean, they've all interacted with God, but just to make the point clear that people's interpretation of God is always going to be very individual. We find out what she thinks God is or who or what she thinks God is. And then we come back to Bartleby and Loki who have made their little side trip to crash that movie's board meeting and shit is about to get real. Bartleby starts by listing the company's properties and exploits and then he turns the crosshairs on the board of directors who he refers to as idolaters. All of this is being done to stoke Loki's fire a little bit. Yeah. Because Loki's going to be the one that takes care of business here in a minute. And I don't even want to get into some of the stuff that Bartleby brings up about these people. It's just a clear reminder that it doesn't matter how well you know somebody, there are always going to be things about them that you don't know, and you're probably happier not knowing. Right. That's everybody that you come into contact with, even the spider. Yeah, there's skeletons in that closet too. Bartleby starts outing everybody's sins, and it stokes Loki up. But not really visibly. Loki is like cool as a cucumber through this whole thing and then kind of walks out and leaves the audience sitting there like, okay, but wasn't the point of this? And then bam, he comes back in and just takes out the entire room except for one person that they decided basically lived a clean life. So they they let her live. And that was that. 
but before he takes everybody out, he has to lay out his manifesto. And then he says, none of you has anything to fear anymore. You rest comfortably in seats of inscrutable power, hiding behind your false idol, far from judgment, lives shrouded in secrecy, even from one another, but not from God. And you know what? If I still believed in God, it's the type of thing that I would be saying about people like Kat Kerr. Yeah. All of the people that are part of that movement. I think that it's apropos. Not that these people deserve the same fate, but I do think that the sentiment is absolutely true. Yeah. So after Bartleby and Loki take care of business at Mooby's headquarters, we go back to the go-go bar for more of serendipity. But we also find out that because she's not technically human, this whole sexuality thing is nothing but a front because, you know, she's got as much going on downstairs as Metatron or any of the angels do. In her own sense of self, she identifies as an abstract, but what she actually is in terms of Catholic lore and mythology is that she's a muse, and she's a muse with writer's block, which is the ironic part of all this. But she was responsible for 19 of the top 20 grossing films of all time, so she's made her mark on the world. Yeah. And as she's telling this story, we cut to the bathroom where something seems to be going wrong with the toilet. Something very, very wrong. But Get a plumber. Yeah. Or an exorcist. One of the two. You're going to need... And I mean, I think that when all is said and done, you they probably needed both. But serendipity, though, uh, she's quite the distraction. So, I mean, with all this going on, you would think that the smell would start wafting a little bit, but it really doesn't. It doesn't. Or they're too enthralled with her to even notice. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the two. And there are a lot of foreshadowings. A lot of them come from her, and they rub off on Bethany really well about who God is. And she goes into this thing about gender bias and talking about how God is portrayed. So right. we already heard Rufus talk about how Jesus is portrayed. So now we're going to hear about how God the Father, quote unquote, is portrayed. And she says that when the Bible was written, they were very male-dominated times, And uh, the Pharisees and high priests felt threatened by the idea of a woman lording over them and controlling their fates. So they knew the true nature of God and that he wasn't necessarily male, but he became male so that there would be an acceptance of his authority. And it doesn't stop with God because, as uh, Serendipity points out, the entire Bible is slanted and gender biased, which, you know, that's not a surprise to anyone who listens to this show. I'll be honest here. I probably should have thought about this before. I didn't think about it as much as I should have before it was kind of laid out for me this way. But the first time I saw this, I'm like, oh, my God, she's right. She says that a woman is responsible for the first sin. She's responsible for the fall of man and the expulsion from Eden. A woman cuts Samson's coif of power. A woman asks for the head of John the Baptist. Read the Bible again sometime, and you'll see that women are painted as bigger antagonists than the fucking Egyptians and Romans combined. And she's right. And then she really hits them with a zinger. Because in this universe, I think Catholicism is about the only brand of Christianity that there is. And she says, you people don't celebrate your faith. You mourn it. And Mm. she's right. And with that, we find out what's been going on in the bathroom. Oh, God. And something stinky this way comes. (sighs) 
Um, you've heard of the Elementals? Well, here's the Excremental, the Golgothan shit demon. This is my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> and the way that this is described, I think, you know, I've I've done research on this too. You couldn't find anything on I it I couldn't either. find anything. I'm pretty sure this is just something that Kevin Smith pulled out of his own ass. No pun intended here, given what this but is. it's really clever. It's very clever. Because and I'm like, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. In a million years. But it fits well with all kinds of Catholic lore. Yeah. That's the funny part about it. And this is the way that serendipity describes it. She says, yeah, well, it wasn't just Christ up there. The Romans crucified everybody on that hill. And Christ excluded. They were all criminals, killers, brigands, thieves, rapists. And whenever the crucified expired, their bodies would naturally lose muscle control, spilling bowel and bladder in the process. And the result is that walking pile of crap up there, the Golgothan shit demon, hell's chief assassin, and he's here for you, in reference to Bethany. So now we've got shit demons coming after Bethany. But fortunately, Bob has a little something that knocks strong odors out, and uh, the prophets come through once again. Demon conquering by coincidence. Who carries air freshener spray in their pocket? Somebody who hangs out with someone who farts a lot. And that's pretty <laughs> yeah. much the way that Bob explains it in his silent sort of way. Yeah. Uh, so hanging around with Jay makes it necessary to carry a little bit of air freshener, evidently. Evidently. And in this instance, it really did come in handy. It did. So with the shit demon not vanquished, but definitely incapacitated, serendipity thinks that she can get some information out of him about what's going on here, but we never get to see that. We never get to see the shit demon interrogated, which I think would have been funny, but we don't get to see it. But right now, Bartleby and Loki have a little problem. They can't get a ticket to New Jersey because of the draw of the Garden State, I think is the way that she puts it. But Asriel is on the case. He shows up and chastises them for their recent activities and warns them that basically all of heaven and hell are looking for them and that no one wants them to succeed because it's common knowledge what they're doing. Well, probably because Asriel told them. And Rufus is obviously concerned because, well, he knows what's at stake and he sees humanity as being worth saving. And he tells Bethany and co that God still quote unquote digs humanity, but it bothers him to see what gets carried out in his name. So that's nice to know, but with all due respect, everyone who's carrying this shit out learned from the best. That's what I'm thinking here. It's like he doesn't like all of this. He sanctioned a lot of this in the Old Testament. What's not to like? But Rufus is quite the apologist, and he has a lot of strong opinions. And of course, also in this universe, God is supposedly loving But you still, through this entire thing, you don't really see much of an example of that little bit, tiny little bit at the very end, but you don't see a whole lot. So back to Bartleby and Loki, they found alternate transport to New Jersey at this point. And as it happens, they're on this train where Bethany and Rufus and Jay and Silent Bob also are. So both factions are on this train and no one knows who anybody is. They don't recognize each other at this point. And there are some very deep concepts that come out in this scene that I'm not going to stop and really get into because either A, you can watch the movie, which I hope you will if you haven't seen it. You can also find the script, which I have linked to. But this scene in particular, there was a lot 
that happened. And I like Rufus's take on the whole concept of religion and faith that comes out here and the nature of human beings and how these two kind of clash with each other. Yeah. He says that the only way people know how to reaffirm that they're alive is by fighting with each other, debating. And, you know, people spend their entire lives going back and forth with each other over all of these issues. We fight about who's right and wrong. We fight ourselves. We fight each other. We fight death. We fight over beliefs. And we fight over fights. That's an interesting way of bringing it full circle. He says that we believe that to stop debating is to stop living. And isn't that, I mean, it's so true. And it, it transcends religion. We argue and fight with each other about everything. And we do it because asserting our opinions about anything is asserting our sense of self. It reaffirms our sense of self within us. That's kind of the point that he's making there. He also makes the point that people die and kill for their beliefs, which is why belief really isn't a great idea. Right. You know, having belief is nowhere near as practical or useful as having actual ideas about things. Right. And he explains that a little bit later, too. And then we learn about how Bethany lost her faith. And we got a little bit of this earlier, too. But in this instant, she says that she remembers the exact moment that she just decided it was all bullshit. And it was when she was on the phone with her mother and her mother was trying to counsel her through what was happening with her marriage. And mom says something like, there's always a plan. And Bethany says, and I just got so angry. I mean, I know she was talking about God, right? God had a plan. But I was like, what about my plans? You know, like, don't they count for anything? I had plans to grow old with my husband and have a family. Wasn't that plan good enough for God? And again, I think about some of the things that I was going through when I rage quit the first time. And it's like, well, what about what I want? I've been doing what you want literally since I was 15 Mm -hmm. at this point. I've been doing everything according to what you told me you wanted. And you're kind of leaving me out to the wolves here. That was my sentiment, and boy, oh boy, could I relate to what Bethany was talking about here. And Bartleby decides to chime in and says that there came a point where God just stopped answering him, and that was what did it for him. Not, I mean, he knows that God exists, but any admiration or respect that he had for God disappeared when God disappeared on him. That's basically what he's saying there. Now, of course, they're on this train. And there's alcohol involved again. Mm -hmm. And Bethany is half cocked and she's talking. And again, none of these people know who each other are. So she's just having this conversation with Bartleby and starts spilling the beans about all of this. And a light goes off in Bartleby's head. And at this point, shit is about to get real. Mm. And now comes the standoff. Rufus starts moralizing about consequences. And Loki and Bartleby aren't hearing it. Bob jumps Loki and chucks him out of the train and then takes care of uh, Bartleby as well. I felt really, really bad for this poor sod that's on this train. It's like there's only one person on this train that isn't in this group. And he's watching all this happen. And he's just looking at Silent Bob like, what the hell are you? And that's when he pulls out the Indiana Jones and says, no ticket. I love it when he does the nerdy lines. It's about the only time he talks. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. But he does have some other good things to say, yes. especially in the other movies. They don't let him say much this no, time No, they around. don't. No, he doesn't say He's only much. got two lines. That's it. Yeah. 
But Loki is apparently starting to have second thoughts. And I mean, not that he wasn't all along, but he's really starting to have second thoughts now. And Bartleby is as obsessed as he's always been. And he's getting angrier as time goes by. He's becoming more and more resolved that this is something that they need to do. And for him, it really boils down to he's jealous of humanity. He's jealous because God seems to love humans more than he loves him. And that's a problem for Bartleby, obviously. So he's feeling unloved. And the more Loki protests, the more it firms his resolve that this is something that needs to happen. Loki does not want to kill Bethany. And he even has a soft spot for Jay and Silent Bob. But Bartleby is very persuasive. Oh, yeah, I didn't even mention that they, for whatever reason, they're in a parking garage. And I have no idea how they got there either. Yeah. It was just, I, I guess I guess Kevin Smith found a cheap place to film a scene, so Probably. they filmed it there. And this is where Bartleby just kind of loses it. You see just how angry he is. And he says these humans have besmirched everything that's been bestowed upon them. They were given paradise and they threw it away. They were given this planet and they destroyed it. They were favored best among all his endeavors. And some of them don't even believe that he exists. He's shown them infinite fucking patience at every turn. And that's where I kind of stopped and said, Bartleby, have you read the Old Testament? I mean, you lived it apparently. So... Where was the infinite fucking patience with Pharaoh? Yeah. You know, just just, let's just think about that one instance. And there were so many others. And then he says to Loki, I asked you once to lay down your sword years ago. Why? Because I felt sorry for them. And where did it get us? Expulsion from paradise. Where was his infinite fucking patience then? We've paid our debt. Don't you think it's time we went home? All the while, he knows better. Yeah. And we're going to find out. And in true Bartleby style, because he has a strong influence over the weaker-minded Loki, mm. he says, don't let your sympathies get the best of you. And with that, Loki is very taken aback, and, he's, and he is definitely starting to worry. And he kind of has an epiphany at this point. And he looks at Bartleby in a way that he hasn't throughout this entire thing. And he says, I've heard a rant like this before. And it's implied and then stated outright that he's talking like Lucifer. Right. And Bartleby is not happy with that parallel that Loki is making there. And Loki starts really understanding what's going on here. He says, you're not talking about going home. You're talking about war on God. Well, fuck that. I've seen what happens to the proud when they take on the throne. So now he's becoming less enthused by this whole thing, but he's still following along because that's kind of what Loki does. He just sort of follows along. Yeah. And now in another kind of odd jump, we see all the good guys sitting around a campfire. And I don't quite understand how all of these scenes, you know, why, how we're supposed to get from point A to point B with a lot of this. I, I really don't. And I think that, that that just might be on purpose. But the good guys are sitting around a campfire and Bethany has her why me moment of the movie and she kind of loses it. Yeah, she gets uh, she gets very emotional at this point. And Rufus kind of comes back again, the uh, perpetual apologist who really, really, really legit loves Jesus says, you know, how do you think Jesus felt when he was a child and figured out who he was? 
and the weight of responsibility that came along with that. And, you know, he's kind of trying to downplay what Bethany is going through here. And I don't think that's very fair. Yeah. Um, because Jesus did, in fact, if you follow the narrative of the story, Jesus was, in fact, fully human and fully divine. So he had his own power in his corner. Whereas this girl, and she's just a girl from uh, from Illinois, and now she's got this huge weight of responsibility bearing down on her. So I think that it was kind of a simplistic way of dealing with that. And she doesn't understand the whole thing of her being a, a scion, so he explains it and basically tells her that she's the great, 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 great grandniece of Jesus, and that's where she is right now. That one little strand of DNA. Yeah. is what's holding the whole thing together. But she's upset, and rightly so. And she runs off and has a very wet, splish-splashy, um, Roy Neary and Close Encounters of the Third Kind moment here where she's having this tantrum in the middle of a lake, and Metatron shows up walking on the water. Of course. Because That's... why not? Why not? And uh, he's there basically to talk her down. She is literally fed up she's screaming about how much she hates god and metatron cool as a cucumber reminds her that at this point god can't hear her because god is incapacitated and no one knows where he is which is not out of character for god in this universe (laughs) but there's a reason why at this point And there is a definite disconnect that's going on here. God is incommunicado at this point. So she tells him, I don't want this. It's too big. And now we've got a little bit of Metatron's apologetic side coming out. And he says, well, that's what Jesus said. Well, you know, again, how do you even compare these two? Yeah, It's like comparing apples to particle accelerators. But apparently it works because it does kind of... It, it kind of brings her down off the ledge, at least for that moment. Right. And Metatron makes the point that Jesus grappled for years with the reality of who he was and what he had to do, which is why there's nothing about him from age 12 to age 30 in the Bible. This is a far more human picture of Jesus than most Christians would ever really want to see. Right. Which is, and it was the problem that people had with the last temptation of Christ. Right. Because it... To portray Jesus in a much more human way. Right. And, you know, people didn't want their God to be human, even though he was. No one, apparently, according to the biblical narrative, wanted to see Jesus in his 20s and having all these crises of self. I have to wonder, though, how he would have really dealt with not only having a father like Yahweh, but ostensibly being Yahweh. Because if I was Jesus... And I really understood the nature of my father and the type of thing that he was. I think that it would disturb me a little bit. I think that it would disturb me a lot. You know, I have to wonder how human Jesus wasn't completely disgusted with his divine self. Because even Bronze Age humans understood how wrong this deity's ways of dealing with humanity were. They knew. They absolutely knew. Why else would they have constructed such an intricate avatar around those behaviors and tendencies and expect people to worship this construct that they put before them? The answer is simple as far as I'm concerned. When you can make people afraid, you can control them. And that's what it was all about. They needed a fearsome God that could control the people. And that's what it boiled down to. 
Rufus kind of brings up this point too, but from a slightly different perspective. You're hearing the same kinds of opinions and ideas from pretty much everybody involved in this. You're getting what's going on in their head. Bethany, at this point, admits that she's fearful that her whole life up to now has been a lie because uh, there were certain things that she didn't know about herself. And it's kind of an overwrought moment, but uh, I think the line was necessary for Metatron to be able to make this flowery speech about how nothing she's been told about herself changes who she is and blah, blah, blah. He encourages her to be who she's always been and to just be this as well to be the scion, to be the mother of the world here, who saves the world from non-existence. Just be this as well. It doesn't change who you were, doesn't change who you are, but just sort of add this to the narrative, is yeah. what he's telling her there. And since Metatron's tastes go a little bit beyond campfires, all of a sudden, again, we, I guess, apparate to this fancy restaurant where... Um, you know, Metatron can be just a little bit more comfortable. He likes manipulating his surroundings and fitting them to what makes him feel good. This is where we find out that God is actually missing, that he is in human form and incapacitated. And as long as he's stuck in the meat suit that he's in right now, he can be controlled and he's completely powerless. So, so weird. what the hell kind of God is this idiot? That's what I'm thinking. But it gets worse. All this trouble stems from God having an obsession with, wait for it, wait for it, skee-ball. Okay, <laughs> that's why you saw that in the beginning. And this really is the whole premise of this movie and the sheer ridiculousness of it. If you couldn't treat it like comedy before, understanding yeah, no. this point makes it much, much easier. Existence almost got obliterated because God is obsessed with skee-ball and was known to disappear for various lengths of time to go play in various places. So he would just kind of duck out of heaven to go play skee-ball and not tell anybody where he was going. And this was one of those instances, and he let his guard down just a little bit too much, and now all of existence can just cease to be because of his obsession with skee-ball. <laughs> now, serendipity has kind of rubbed off on Bethany. She has started aching to using female pronouns to describe God, and Metatron kind of finds it irritating and starts, you know, I guess he, he doesn't want to follow her into this train of thought, but he does start using neutral pronouns as right. a matter of convenience because he also knows that he kind of has to stay on, on level footing with her. Right. And there is a looming dread that has now taken over this whole conversation. But Jay, of all people, comes up with the simplest and most practical solution to this problem that they're facing and says, why don't we just ask Cardinal Glick to cancel the ceremony? Right. I mean, it seems like the simplest solution out there. And why didn't they just do this in the first place? Well, I think that they all knew that it would kind of be a fruitless effort. Yeah. But this is their, pardon the term, Hail Mary. <laughs> so they're going to do it. Yeah. So they go to see Cardinal Glick, who is quite proud of the whole Catholicism wow thing. And he's brazen enough to just fucking admit that they're trying to keep the church from dying of natural causes with this. He wants to bring in a younger demographic and, quote, hook them while they're young. So they ask him, 
nicely to cancel the ceremony, and they tell him why in very specific terms, which Rufus is not happy about. He's like, and Bethany is spilling the beans about all of this, and he's like, will you shut up? Because he knows, and anybody has to know how crazy this sounds. And Mm. Glick, you know, he responds to it the way that he would have either way, but I don't think Bethany's approach here helped very much. He literally thinks that Rufus and Bethany are nuts, but in this context and at this moment in time, who wouldn't? Then he offers this little gem. He says, the Catholic Church does not make mistakes. And Rufus is instant in season the way that we're all supposed to be as good Christians. (laughs) And uh, he says, well, what about the church's silent consent to the slave trade? And Bethany, also quite instant in season, says, what about their official platform of non-involvement during the Holocaust? And Glick is determined that the ceremony is going to happen and it's going to go off without a hitch. He is not about to be swayed. And he says it twice. The ceremony is happening and it's going to go off without a hitch. And with that, we see Bartleby and Loki crossing the border into the good old Garden State. They have arrived in New Jersey. And here we are at another dive bar (laughs) and all of our heroes are kind of sitting around commiserating because this was, again, their kind of last ditch Hail Mary effort and it fell flat. So now no one really knows what to do next. But for some reason, I don't know whether this was um, divine ordinance or what, but for some reason, Jay and Silent Bob decided it would be a good idea to steal Cardinal Glick's golf club. His driver, to be exact. They just did it. And it's not really explained why, but but it's going to come in handy in just a sec. Asriel shows up with the triplets. So now it's kind of the final showdown. This is their kind of last stand. And it looks like all is lost. It looks like Asriel is going to get his way. And his goal here is to just hold these people in place so that they can't disrupt these plans any further. And they're just going to sit there and wait for the world to end. Now, the bartender in this place, he's, he's the only one who is not in on the story. And he doesn't like Asriel at all and tells him to leave. Asriel, being the crafty sort that he is, mm-hmm. he convinces the bartender to pour him a drink for the road. And he orders a holy bartender. Now, what happens next is every bit as disturbing as Joker's disappearing pencil trick in Dark Knight. Because let's just say Holy has an E in it in this instance. Yeah. And just out of thin air, Asriel has, um, he takes out, I think it was an Uzi. It looked like an Uzi. That he just decided if the bartender's not going to make it, he's going to make it. So he makes a Holy bartender. Now, Serendipity decides that she's going to lay it out in very, very specific terms. And tries to explain to Asriel, in case he wasn't acutely aware at this point, of what his little plan involves. But as it turns out, he does know, and he's choosing non-existence over going back to hell. And he flat out doesn't care what the full ramifications are here. And we find out a few other things about these two, that there is um, there's a relationship there yeah. that they don't really go into very much. But basically, for all intents and purposes, these two are siblings. Asriel and Serendipity are quote-unquote siblings, and that is to say that they were created at the same time and had similar purposes. Asriel was also basically supposed to be a muse, an artist, and things about him kind of evolved over time. So while they're having this little conversation, 
we cut to the church on the day of the ceremony and there's Bartleby and Loki. They show up to set the record straight about a few things that Glick is saying during this uh, press conference. Glick refers to the church as God's house and Bartleby decides to set the record straight on that. He says, God doesn't live here anymore and tells the crowd to prepare to taste God's wrath. And with that, the bloodbath begins but our heroes are still stuck in this uh, dive bar where the big reveal is going on. And then we find out a little bit more about Azrael. He refused to fight in the war in heaven. So when the smoke cleared, he was kicked out. And serendipity starts acting all superior because she decided to stay and fight, which meant that she was allowed to stay in heaven. So the way that it's explained is that Lucifer got restless and started his own little war for the throne. And then at that point, heaven became divided into two factions, the faithful and the renegades. It was angel against angel. And then the ones that fought on the side of Lucifer, the ones that fought on the side of God, and it was all over. God cast the rebels into perdition. But Asriel, you know, he basically refused to fight and wouldn't ally himself with God or Lucifer. He was the real Severus Snape in this story, because just like Severus Snape, he wasn't on anyone's side but his own. So he remained in the middle waiting to see who was going to come out victorious. And I think that the point was that he was going to side with whoever came out on top because it was just the smarter option. Yeah. And it's here that Asriel then explains his entire plan. He spent millions of years trying to find a way to outsmart God. He studied every religion and settled on Catholicism because the concept of plenary indulgences basically solved his problem of needing to be set free of hell at any cost. So he saw to it that God was incapacitated just long enough for Bartleby and Loki to pass through the arch. He suggests that they pass the time by watching a little TV. And of course, he turns on the TV to what's going on in the news, which is complete chaos. Ugh. And Asriel taunts Bob to hit him with the golf club. And now everyone in the room is getting a little bit irritated with him. And Bob picks up the golf club and wails him right in the chest with it. He's being chided to do it for longer than I think the movie needed to. But what happens next kind of surprised me, but kind of didn't because I figure something has to happen to this asshole. So Bob takes a swing and literally rips Asriel a new hole right in the middle of his chest. And yes. it's a big one. But I'm a demon. Well, not anymore. Well, no, he's still got a couple of minutes to think about it. Yeah. Before he vanishes from existence. He's got a little bit to think about here. Yeah. He's just so fucking stunned. Yeah, she's like, you know, I, I don't think that he's really thinking about the full ramifications of what's about to happen to him. No. He's just like, what the fuck just happened here? <laughs> and that's how he goes down. Yeah. At that point, Serendipity tells Bethany to bless the sink behind the bar because this kind of pisses off the Stygian triplets who are always at Azrael's side. They've been kind of holding Jay and Silent Bob at bay for a little while. They've been doing what they need to do to make sure that nobody leaves the bar. But now it's just an all-out melee. And Bethany goes over to the sink behind the bar and blesses it. And now that's holy water. That's about as simple as it is. Yeah. So she blesses the sink and our heroes then dispatch the Stygian triplets in true Lost Boys bathtub style. <laughs> if you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. So of course, everyone's a little bit surprised that this actually worked. But there's a reason. Of course. It's one of the stupidest reasons out there, but at least it worked in their favor in this instance. Makes sense. 
Yeah, it did. In this context, it did. Because think about who Cardinal Glick was. This was the kind of prick that liked to bless his golf clubs with holy water so he would get lower scores. So basically, Bob kills Azriel with a holy golf club. Yep. That's the entire explanation for it right there. So we've made it to the dramatic climax of this film. The church is in devastation. The angels are nowhere to be found. And of course, Jay is walking around and he's looking at the carnage and he says, no wonder people don't want to go to church anymore. Jeez. And it's kind of a macabre metaphor. Yeah. But I think it's a good one. Yeah. I do think that it's a good one. Now we at least get a little bit of an idea of what's going on here because Bartleby is having fun dropping people to their deaths. It's kind of a role reversal, but still he is having just a little bit too much fun with this. He's just picking people up from the crowd and just flying up high in the air and dropping them. And he's been doing this apparently for hours because Loki appears out of nowhere and he is crunk. Okay. Oh my God. He also doesn't have wings anymore. He's human. And that's why he can imbibe alcohol. That's why he can actually drink the beer and he must really need it. Well, wouldn't you? Yeah. At the end of all this, oh, yeah. you know, it's like you've gone through all of this shit and now you've reached the point where it looks like you're about to win. It's Miller time. Okay. Right. So he's enjoying a couple of last minute indulgences because he knows that the end is really, really, really near. So right. now he just wants to experience a couple of things. Yeah. And they have to walk through that arch, but they haven't yet. Mm. And that's going to wind up being very problematic. I mean, they should have struck while the iron was hot, but they didn't. And it is going to cost them. So Bartleby has basically gone batshit. Yeah. He's been at this business for hours and he's in the throes of maniacal glee over what he's doing. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, guys, 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 you have one job here. Talk about a missed <laughs> yeah. opportunity. The angels, Bartleby in particular, have just a wee bit too much confidence. And it's a situation that one of my favorite authors, Tad Williams, would describe as confident, cocky, lazy, dead. And we're right now at stage three of this. Yeah. They've gotten lazy. They are indulging themselves just a little bit too much when they should just be walking through that arch. Yeah. They have that one objective. It's just that you ha- you had this one job. That's yeah. it. But they're wasting time now because they got cocky and now they're lazy. The urgency to do this is worn off right. because now they're in the mode of how can we possibly lose at this point? Right. They think that they've cinched their return to heaven um, or at least Loki thinks because, again, I think Bartleby knows absolutely positively what's going on here. And then they have this conversation where Bartleby basically admits that he knows what's about to happen. And, of course, Loki isn't happy about this. But I think that at this point, Bartleby has just had enough of Loki. And Loki gets just close enough to him, and Bartleby stabs him with a, with, uh, a dagger, yeah. a rapier. And uh, since Loki is now human, he promptly dies. And it's at that point that Rufus and Serendipity are now trying to take down Bartleby. They're not really succeeding. No. Because Bartleby, he's large. He's an angel. He is very strong. Yeah. And he's very determined. And that last part, I think, can supersede the others pretty easily in a lot of situations. 
But Jay disappears behind a bunch of sound equipment with Bethany. And we're thinking, okay, another chivalrous gesture. He's trying to protect her. No, no, no. He's just trying to fuck her one last time. In one of their earlier conversations, she kind of, not directly, but sort of indirectly to stop the conversation, says that if the world was literally ending, she might consider it. And now he's like, okay, the world is ending. And you said you'd fuck me. So that's what that's yes. what he's trying to accomplish here. But he's very quickly interrupted by his own words. And this is, I think it's the first time that yeah. we hear about this whole John Doe Jersey thing. Yeah. But he's talking about this John Doe Jersey who is in a hospital that's very, very close by. And he's on life support. And he was attacked at Asbury Park, blah, blah, blah. And Bethany has an epiphany. And as it turns out, the guy at the beginning was definitely 100% God. Yep. And he was basically taken down by his skee-ball obsession. So Bethany very hastily tells Jay, Jay, (laughs) to do whatever's necessary to keep Bartleby from going into the church, which, of course, is going to prove to be a big mistake. Mm. She runs off to the hospital where God is laying there on life support, leaving Jay to his own devices. Again, bad move. So what happens is he picks up the machine gun, the Uzi, which still apparently is loaded for bear with ammo. I guess. And and he just unloads on Bartleby. But he's not a very good shot. And all he manages to do is basically blow Bartleby's wings off. So now Bartleby is human also, just like Loki was. Rufus and Serendipity are trying to stop this, but they're too late. And, you know, now they've got a whole new problem to contend with. But Bethany has, she's on a mission. She enters the hospital where people are just scattering because this is not a drill. This is the apocalypse and you need to leave now. Yeah. That's what's coming over the loudspeakers. Yeah, that is crazy. Okay? Not sure why, but that's what's happening because it's funny. That's why. Yeah. And she finds John Doe Jersey and she cuts his life support and he dies. Which is what needs to happen here because his mortal body needs to die so that he can go back to heaven. He's trapped in this body. So he has to die so that he can go back to heaven. Yeah. So she takes him off life support. He dies. But this part, I'm not quite sure precisely how it happened or how he did it. But immediately we see that Bethany is wounded. She's got this big wound in her side. Yeah. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But... Now it's time for Bartleby to enter the church, and he's being real cocky about it at this point. He walks right up to the door, but since God has now been freed and and is able to intervene, the door opens, and boom, there are two beings standing there, one that we know and one that we don't yet. One of them is Metatron, and the other is who we know to be Alanis Morissette. Yes. Okay? And... All this foreshadowing through this entire movie about the feminine nature of God is coming out right now. And there are a few things that offend most Catholics than the concept of God being a woman. Yeah. So this was kind of the final fuck you of this movie, but it was a good one. And I think that Alanis did a good job. Oh, yeah. Just for the few minutes that she was in it, I think she did okay. She was very whimsical. Very, very whimsical. More whimsical than you would expect Alanis Morissette to ever be. Yeah. So God turns out to be a she. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? 
you know, like rain on your wedding day. Okay. <laughs> I think we've quoted enough. Thank you, Alanis. But Metatron can't help getting in one final taunt here. And honestly, I do feel like it's deserved. He looks at Bartleby and says, was Wisconsin really that bad? Yeah, really. So I'm going to refer to her as Godlanis for the rest of this. Um, Godlanis <laughs> embraces Bartleby and they have a moment of regretful reunion. This is the one tinge of love that I see come from God in this whole thing because you can tell that she is dismayed and disappointed and saddened by what she needs to do now. But just like that, she, I guess, Sonic booms him to death. She basically explodes him with a bloody roar. That's what happens here. It's kind of odd, but I guess it works. But just before she does, Bartleby looks at her with this look that's somewhere between shame, dread, and utter relief and says, thank you, because his tortured soul is going to be no more. Right. So I guess at the end of the day, he and Azrael had the same basic idea that non-existence was better than the existence that he was fated to. And yeah. he thanks her for taking him out of existence. Yeah. Jay kind of loses it at this point as Jay often does. <laughs> um, and you know, he's, he's like going off and he's basically yelling at God and being admonished not to, but God Lannis kind of takes it in stride and gives him a little peck on the cheek, which either calms him down or makes him really, really stoned because that's how he looks he at just, that moment. He just, you never see his face like that, though. You never see Jay's face go slack. It's like he was angry and now he's not angry anymore. He doesn't know what to do with himself. Well, she she smooched the anger out of him, basically. I guess. So God Lannis is looking around at the carnage. And while she's surveying the destruction, she smiles, which I'm thinking, well, that's typical of this deity, isn't it? You know, this God is known for, you know, having a real love affair with killing people and death and violence yeah. and all things just gory and horrible. So she's surveying the destruction and smiling. She then basically sweeps away the clutter and everything just looks normal and clean again. No dead bodies, no blood, no nothing. Everything is just tranquil and serene, except for Bethany, who Silent Bob carries back into the frame. And she is very clearly dead from this mysterious wound. And Metatron makes the point to be a martyr, you have to die. I'm not sure why she had to be martyred, but okay. She's a martyr now, but no worries, because Godlanis then resurrects her. And then when, uh, when she wakes up and she comes to Metatron, quotes the opening credits to the $6 million man, and Godlanis goes off to sniff flowers and do handstands, and basically just enjoy being a girl for a little while. <laughs> and then Metatron gives Bethany the one thing that she really wants. He tells her that she's pregnant, and to take care of the kid because, quote, she has a world of work to do. And with that, I had a real John Connor sort of moment. <laughs> yeah. And I would have liked to see how she handled that responsibility later yeah, on. But there was never a dogma, too. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. I would like to see one, though. I would, too. I would definitely like to yeah. see that. Bethany then asks God Lannis why we are here. And isn't that the question that's on all of our minds about yeah. our existence, because we don't, we don't have the answer to that question. Nope. Science hasn't even answered it yet. Uh, yet. 
Okay, it would be nice to think that they will during my lifetime, but I'm not holding my breath. No, I'm not holding my breath. No. And God Lannis responds with pretty much the same answer God gives any of us about anything. She walks right up to her, pokes her in the nose and says, whoop. And that's the entire answer. Yep. Now it's time for warm goodbyes. The only problem is that Bethany is now a believer. That's a problem. As far, for me, it's a problem. Yeah. Well, let's just say she has an idea. Let's, she's, yeah. taken, she's taken a leaf from Rufus's book. Yeah. And she has different ideas about what her faith is at this point. Right. The bottom line is seeing is believing. And she's been given proof that God exists. Right. But as Matt Dillahunty likes to tell us, even if God proved to be real, he or she or whatever has a lot of explaining to do and wouldn't be worthy of worship just because he, she, or it existed. Yeah. So that's an important point to keep in mind here. It doesn't matter whether or not God is real. What matters is whether or not this being is worthy of worship and has the power that he, she, or it says they do. Let's use that pronoun. Yeah. And I mean, the overlying message in this movie is that they really don't. And that little whoop, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. So I guess the question on a lot of people's minds as we draw this thing of ours to a close for another week is why this movie? Why choose a movie that begins and ends on the concept of God being real as part of our atheist podcast? Well, spoiler alert, we have other movies on deck that do too. This one, though, has some very deep, although maybe just slightly accidental messaging about God. Oh, really? Like what? Well, like that God needs people to have power. Bethany had to take God off life support. This omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful being was imprisoned in a meat suit, and there was nothing he could do about it until a person gave him back his power. Yeah. And what's the first thing he does when he gets it back? He kills someone, because that's what Yahweh does. It doesn't matter that the plan was to resurrect her. It's more of this whole violence to bring about good that we're supposed to think is happening throughout the Old Testament whenever God kills anyone. And he does it two million times just in that book alone. Yeah. The next major message that I got from this movie is that God is chronically absent. He, she, or whatever has a penchant for quiet non-involvement in people's lives. He was known for disappearing from heaven and not telling anyone where he was going so he could go play skee-ball and not be bothered. Well, in his effort to disassociate from humanity and everything else for that matter, he almost caused the end of existence. So let's remember that. Another big one that I got from this movie is that belief is confining. Rufus says that it's better to have ideas than beliefs. You can change an idea, but beliefs just keep people where they are with no room for growth or self-betterment. I know all about having different ideas about things over time, and I am so thankful that I had the guts to listen when my brain started telling me that right. there was something not right here. It took a while, but I finally listened. And when that happened, it became apparent to me that my ideas about God and faith were just silly. And I didn't have to be afraid of things like hell. And I didn't have to follow anybody else's rules in terms of morals and ethics because I knew right from wrong. And I just had the choice as to whether or not I wanted to be the type of person who does what's easy because that's what most people do. Most people aren't concerned with what's good or bad or right or wrong. They're concerned with what's most convenient at that moment in time. So was I going to be one of these people who lives by the power of convenience 
or was I going to be someone who asked the question, what's the right thing to do here? And I'm not going to say that I succeed in everything in that regard, but at least it's in my mind. And when I fail, I know that I'm failing and I know that I have to think differently about that thing. And I need to try and be a better person, someone who is more capable of doing right versus easy. And it's not a simple or easy thing to do, to take the right path. Yeah. And last but not least, to me anyway, this movie tells us quite simply that God doesn't really love us. Bethany's question was simple. The real reason God Lannis doesn't answer is simple too. Because if God Lannis were to have been honest at that moment, she would have had to admit that we're nothing but playthings and that we have no grand purpose beyond spending eternity stroking her ego or much more likely crying out for mercy that never comes as we're tortured eternally for finite crimes that begin with simply not loving God or believing in Jesus with no evidence. I could have done without the song at the end. I'm a big fan of Alanis, but this song bothered me because at the end of it, it's kind of a love song from God to humanity. It romanticizes a lot of the defects of character that we all struggle with and paints God in a kind of loving light that he, she, or whatever will never, ever, 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 ever deserve. I think that Joan Osborne's song, One of Us, encapsulates the spirit of the message in this movie much better. So, in closing, what if God was one of us? Well, that's funny, isn't it? Because he can't exist without us. If we stop perpetuating these stories and figure out that everything we have, everything that we get to do in this life, has everything to do with us and nothing external then we don't need to go looking for answers to questions like, why are we here? We're here as the result of a phenomenally unlikely cosmic lottery. There is no reason for our existence. No God to thank or blame for it. We just are. So again, maybe an abstract answer like, whoop, isn't all that far off. Maybe it's more truthful than I'm giving it credit for being. The bad news is that no one in this movie walked away with less faith than they had in the beginning. They all walked away with more. The good news is that this movie does a stellar job of communicating the farcical nature of religion and reminding us not to take things like Christianity too seriously. So thanks to Kevin Smith for that much-needed reminder, because the less seriously we take it, the closer we edge toward getting and staying unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.